Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, Peachy Patra. Today is a guest that I've wanted to have since I started this podcast. Her name is Ashley Mariani, and she is a clinical social worker. Ashley, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I always get um, really humbled by being guests on other people's podcasts because at one point in time, I mean, I was doing a podcast before COVID and I was in that position where I was seeking people to be on my podcast. So thank you so much for um, having me. And it's always a pleasure to be able to reach new audiences and people. Uh, I'm a clinical social worker. I have a private practice. It's called Mind Online. Um, It started out as a private practice serving uh, perinatal families, really. Uh, And then I decided to incorporate elements of my early undergrad teachings into the private practice. So uh, now there's more of an intersectionality between uh, relationships and sexuality and coming into motherhood and parenthood and navigating life with children, mm-hmm. um, trying to remember that we are sexual beings and also parents and all of that fun stuff. I love it. I think I found you. I'm trying to think of when I started following you so I could think of when I found you, but I honestly don't know. Um, it's, it's been a while. Probably I'm with Kate. Sure. Oh, that's I, very possible. Yeah. I think Kate was, Kate was the catalyst. Ah, that would make sense. That yeah. would make sense. But your, I love your Instagram and I love how your stories are always sharing quality information. Like, I enjoy when people post stories about their day and what they're doing and stuff like that. But I use my social media solely to seek out information and to learn new things. I follow people that I know personally and then people that can teach me something. And that's about it. Um, I'm not the type to follow celebrities. I'm not whatever. So I try to learn something from everyone. And I find that a lot of your content is around, like you said, relationships, sexuality, parenting, postpartum, mental health, all of that. And I think it's incredible. Um, Is what you're doing now something that you always wanted to do? It's super interesting that you say that. So when I was in like grade 11, 12, um, I declared at that point in my life that I was going to be a sex therapist. I love Um, it. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew that my life, even, even sexuality at like 16, 17, 18 years old, I needed some liberation. Mm -hmm. And I knew that living in a small rural town, I wasn't going to get that myself. I wasn't going to get exposure to it. So I needed to go out and educate myself and, and get it. Um, and so I did my undergrad in sexuality and then, um, I thought about pursuing some kind of postgraduate degree in sexuality as well. Um, And the universe just didn't that the universe just said like, that's not, that's not the easy route. Like that's the easy route. That's not what we're doing for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I decided to, I didn't decide the universe decided for me. 
uh, that I was going to get a little bit more experience just in the therapeutic counseling world. So I did two years um, in applied counseling, and then I did two years um, for my master's degree in social work, which I totally appreciate because the conversations that I had in those graduate studies classrooms, living in a rural town, um, I would have never in my life had that opportunity to be exposed to those kinds of very like eye-opening conversations mm -hmm. and be held accountable for um, attitudes and beliefs that I carried because of the environment that I grew up in. Um, and so I wanted to pursue something after um, I graduated and I wanted to be able to incorporate sexuality. But at that point, when you're super green as a therapist, you're just like, I don't, I don't care. Just give me a job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like just, and so I did, I moved to Eastern Ontario and I just like, I did it all. I took everything. I, you name it. It like, I, you came to see me. I, I was your therapist no matter what. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, then I had a kid and I was like, ah, yeah, somebody needs to talk about this stuff. This is like, mm -hmm. this is heavy stuff. This is heavy. So I really dove into the perinatal mental health and I did all the training in perinatal mental health. And then the, when the fog lifted and I realized that like, I need to go back to who I am and what I'm passionate about and what's important to me. And so that's when the intersection between perinatal mental health and sexuality came back into the picture and, and starting a private practice, I really needed to niche down because that's what they tell you to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the lane that's that I chose. you. That's yeah. incredible. That's also funny because I keep telling myself that when I have the time, and of course, it's one of those things that like you have to make the time if you want it, uh, but that when I have the time, I want to take courses on sexuality and just become more versed in that because similar to you, it's something that I was very self-aware of and very passionate about and not even just like an, I always want to have sex way, just like it's a very, it's such a diverse topic that's so under talked about and so undervalued even in the aspect of your mental and physical health with it and so that's what I wanted to kind of learn to start to unpack and take those courses so I think that's awesome and that's probably part of what drew me to you um <laughs> <laughs> what would you say are some of the pros and cons of being a therapist uh I think that um, one of the major cons that I'm starting to experience definitely now, um, given that I'm more active in social media, mm -hmm. um, two things. One of them is, um, imposter syndrome. Yes. And the other one is this idea that therapists are, um, blank slate, robotic, no lives, no, no, um, no flaws of their own, no challenges of their own. And then, and, and kind of being someone who is a little bit more transparent and seeing 
again, going back into the imposter syndrome piece and, and seeing other therapists presence online and not wanting to uh, adhere to what's already out there and wanting to be uniquely and vulnerably myself, because how can I ask my clients to be that? And I'm also not showing up as that. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I, I do struggle with this, like how much do I share? What's uh, appropriate to share? Um, when am I wearing my therapist hat? And when am I wearing like my mom hat um, what are my, what are my colleagues and peers doing? Um, there are a few colleagues and peers that when I think about posting something, um, my inner critic voice is their voice and I can just hear them saying like, oh, are you sure that's ethical? Is that really? And I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Mm. Um, and I really need to take a step back and and remember that the people and the clients that find me and the people that follow me online and the people that are drawn to me are drawn to me for a particular reason. And I need to continue just to be authentic. And I think that is just a, a good way to live for everybody, regardless if you're a therapist or not. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate that. Can we talk about imposter syndrome for a minute? Because holy crap, is that ever a thing? And it's something that like, I wouldn't have really thought of the significance of it until I came into it as a working professional. Now, um, you probably have better explanations of it than I do. Are you able to share some? Well, in terms of like explaining it, I think it's like, it's more of a feeling to kind of describe. It's that comparison moment. It's that moment of, um, that moment of feeling like, oh gosh, like this needs to be perfect. Um, there, they have more followers than me. They are dressed more professional than me. Like how I have nothing valuable to what, why should I start a podcast? And especially when I was starting a podcast, uh, and I, I had somebody in my family say to me, like, well, what do you, like, what are you going to talk about? And I'm like, what, like, what am I doing? What am I going to talk about? Like, yeah. And so it's that moment of like, are you worthy? Yes. Are you worthy to take up space and, um, to share your story and, um, just, just like be, be in the world of whatever niche that you're trying to be in. Mm-hmm. I feel like for me, it's when I walk into a room and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so underqualified. And half the time yeah. I'm not half the time I've earned my way there. Actually more than half the time. Um, I've earned my way there and worked hard as hard as everyone else in the room, but I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And I know damn well what I'm doing, but there's something in there that's like, no, you don't. They know more than you do. Why are you here? Why do you deserve to be here? Um, Do you have something that you often say to yourself or like a strategy that you use to pull yourself out of those moments? Yeah, I... um actually creating um like a, a, a good quality cv because i do the exact same thing um mm-hmm. and just having somewhere where you're literally listing 
all of your qualifications mm-hmm. and not necessarily for anyone else but you. And it can be totally informal. And, and when we're talking like professionally, um, when I look at all of the trainings that I've been to and I look at, you know, some of the situations that I threw myself into as a new therapist that I came out on top and I handled like a boss. Those are the, those are my like highlighted moments that I have to remember that I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I need to brag to myself, brag, quote unquote, brag. I need to be, be very vocal to myself about all of my accomplishments and not in a boastful way, in a way that reminds me how far I've come and what I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember that like everybody has had moments of feeling what I feel right now mm-hmm. as, as a mother, like as a parent and having imposter syndrome, because that that's hard too. It's like those moments when you go to play groups or when you have play dates or where you, when you see, you know, so-and-so from high school at the grocery store and you look at them and you're like, Oh shit, like they've got their shit together. Like I can't, like I didn't even shower for the last two weeks and here they are looking like a runway model and mm-hmm. their kids are sitting so quietly in there. <laughs> I'm like, where I don't even know where my kid is somewhere running around the grocery store. I don't know. <laughs> so I think like in those moments and it becomes really difficult not to compare yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but having those affirmations and using that gratitude. And it sounds for a lot of people, when they hear the word like gratitude and affirmations, they're like, Oh, that's pretty woo woo. But there's so much amazing science behind gratitude that if we understand how the brain works in the context of gratitude, um, then we understand how powerful it can be. So having those go-to moments of, okay, I'm, I can identify my insecurities right now. So like, let's pick this up. What am I grateful for? I'm grateful that, you know, I have accomplished so much, or I'm so grateful that I have healthy children, or I'm so grateful that I have, um, I have my children. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm so grateful that I have a, a, a village that supports me in, you know, mothering the way that I mother. I'm so grateful that I feel secure most of the time in the parenting choices that I make. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's going to look different for everybody. Right. So I think that switching that mindset and going back to what's important um, is a good habit to get into. That's such a good one. And even that gratitude piece is something that I'm trying to be a lot more conscious of because I did come across some studies that were reflecting the significance of it. And so my strategy is every single day I walk the dogs and I live four provinces away from basically my entire family. So every day that I'm on the walk, I usually go about eight kilometers. So I call each family member for a couple of kilometers and check in with them. And so each time I talk to them, I ask them, what are three things you're grateful for today? 
because then it reminds them and then they always ask me back and I always tell myself change at least one thing every time you talk to someone different and right now that's the only time I'm actively practicing that I mean I meditate but even then it's more just like a clear the space instead of focus on that but so there's even like little ways that you can incorporate gratitude just asking the questions totally just just speaking it Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, Absolutely. and what I love about being a parent is that we can, our kids can hold us accountable, right? So when we want to start incorporating stuff into our lives, all we have to do is start introducing it to our kids. Mm-hmm. And I remember last summer we started practicing affirmations and on the, on the walk to daycare, we would say things like, I am brave. I am loved. I am kind. And then it just got into this habit. And, and now my almost four-year-old catches me and I'll be like, Oh, I'm so frustrated. And he's like, mom, I am brave. And and then he'll look at me and I'll be like, Oh, what are we doing? He's like, you need to repeat it. I am brave. I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I am brave. I am loved. I am loved. I am kind. I am kind. Okay. We got it. We're good. You hold me accountable, buddy. We're good. Oh my God. That is amazing. I love that. I love that so much. (laughs) I'm like, Patrick, keep that in mind for when you have kids. Um, That's so good. And sometimes you see those internet videos. It's usually like dads and their daughters doing it. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, not only is it like cute, but it's also like so smart. And that's setting them up for success for the rest of their life. Because those are like the little habits that you carry on. And it's also those things that he'll look back on it and be like, yeah, my mom and I used to do this. And it's like one of those things, you know? Oh, I love it. And it's so funny. I explained to my, uh, my, actually my dad caught my son saying it the other day. And then my dad looked at me and he was like, where did he learn how to do that? And I was like, oh, we practice this. And he's like, don't you remember when you were young and I used to make you say, I am a Mary Annie. I am strong. I can do anything. And I was like, I totally forgot that. He's like, I used to make you stand in front of me and say that. And you would get so mad at me for making you say it because you were so embarrassed. But I feel like that really put you in a place in life where you did feel like you could do anything. And I'm like, yeah, I think I don't want to give you credit because (laughs) but it plays a big part. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. But it's like kind of gone down in cycles. These are the positive family cycles we like to see. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Amazing. Don't mind the dog licking. That's okay. Um, What is the best piece of advice that you have received? It can be in any aspect. It can be in parenting. It can be in being a therapist. It can be just being a woman. I was really sitting with this concept of when people have a problem with you Mm -hmm. and you become so caught up in their problem with you, um, whatever problem that is. And this idea that I'm sure has been floating around Instagram a million times, but has been around for a while this concept of um, people's opinions and people's problems with you are theirs and not yours. Absolutely. 
And so in a world, especially like women, um, are taught to please, why aren't you smiling? Why aren't you catering to, why aren't you being subservient? Why aren't you a good hostess? Why are you being bitchy? Why are you making it awkward? Why are you too loud? Why are you so opinionated? Mm-hmm. And, and you just, you get caught up in this, this inner like dialogue of, I need to be a good little girl. I need to be, you know, in the background and I can't take up too much masculine energy or too much masculine space. Um, but then just coming to this place of their problems with me, whatever they are, are rooted in their issues and their projections. And as long as I'm not intentionally hurting people and, um, being rude and being disrespectful, um, like that's, that's their problem. And, and this is a conversation I've had recently just in that, um, partners, partners being embarrassed by each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this kind of dialogue around, you know, was it intentional? Were they manipulating the situation to harass you, to embarrass you, to gain power and control over the situation? If not, and this is just a part of who they are, they have a, a funny, you know, a funny laugh or a, con- a, a conversation comes up about a topic and it's a topic that they're passionate about and they talk in depth about this topic, but it's a topic that um, is a fragile topic, perhaps. Maybe it, it's about sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's embarrassment because of these topics are taboo. And so how do we move away from my partner embarrasses me uh, because they're too much of something and, and start to internalize, like my problem with that situation is my problem and not my partner's problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So on that note, like, I think it's so important to recognize that like different things resonate with different people and everyone interprets it based on their experiences. So you never know where they're coming from until you have those conversations. But I like that you mentioned kind of the shame and some of the embarrassment that comes with taboo topics, such as for some people, sex and yeah. such as even mental health. Um, yes. What are ways that you, or like piece of, pieces of advice that you would give someone that's struggling to recognize how to take that shame away from those topics? Yeah, it's, it, that would be, that would be really interesting to, to talk specifically about the context that the shame is coming up in and if it's perceived shame or actual shaming, right? Because sometimes Mm -hmm. we enter into situations where, um, we think again, it's intent versus impact. Um, we think that someone is shaming us, but it's, just more of our perception of the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
this is why I love social media because if you are, if you have a passion project, if you are someone, um, for example, like uh, obstetric violence for me is like kind of like a side hustle passion project. It's still very much involved in the work that I do given, you know, you birth with your genitalia, you have sex with your some some forms of sex with your genitalia and if there's violations during birth then sex can feel very violating um but i love social media because i can have these conversations Mm -hmm. with the safe people with the people who get what i'm saying the people that consent to the conversations and we have to be very careful that while some conversations people do need to be held accountable if people have um have views or beliefs that are hurtful to groups of people we need to hold them accountable in a respectful way um but when we're when we're talking about certain topics especially when we're talking about sexuality or mental health um it's always important to kind of understand a little bit more about who you're talking with because it can create an unsafe environment. Mm-hmm. So if you're finding that you're having these conversations with people who are not safe to have these conversations with, then create your village that you can have these conversations with. Is that, does that make sense? It does. How would someone go about creating that village? Like say it's someone that you know, is with a very, this is just an example, um, but is with a very conservative partner and they want to explore their sexuality a lot more um, and they want to be able to speak about it with other people that can relate before bringing it forward to their partner. How would someone find a community like that? Because even that, that's something that would be difficult to just kind of Google groups for (laughs) women that need more sexual expression like you know yes yes totally and interestingly enough like uh I would say find find some books first and foremost find find books that really um validate your experience Mm -hmm. because we can always find books on things there's always books or podcasts for that matter um and then you you have an author or a speaker that has cre- already created an audience around that topic. Mm-hmm. So now, um, now you can kind of start following their following and you can start picking up on, you know, who's, who's in that person, that, that person who has more exposure, more PR, who's in their village Mm-hmm. And how do you begin to kind of like introduce yourself, whether it's virtually or in person? Usually it's easier to do virtually, but how do you start to introduce yourself virtually? Um, maybe it's, you know, an author that you follow who wrote a really fantastic book on, you know, um, by curiosity after postpartum. And you have, posts and there's people commenting and so now you can start see what start seeing what these comments are and find people who have similar thought processes to you and you can reach out to them and say you know I saw your comment on such and such a post and 
can you tell me more? And I'm really interested. Um, other than that, I mean, it really is pretty difficult given um, you don't know walking up to somebody in the grocery store, you mm-hmm. know, what, what villages they're already a part of, what hats they already wear. Yeah. Um, so I think that in this day and age, especially with, with, with what's going on right now in the world, that would probably be the easiest route. I mean, there's always Facebook groups for specific things, which is pretty helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would say that that's probably the best route. That is such a good idea. And I think that even like the smaller things take bravery, but when you're at that point where you want to have those conversations, you need that little bit of bravery just to be able to expand your circle with that. Yeah. And hashtags are great. Like hashtags are a fantastic way to start following new pages and connecting with new people. So if I'm looking for um, people to connect with, around obstetric violence, I just have to start following the hashtag obstetric violence. And I have all of these amazing new information-based accounts that are coming up with new perspectives and super validating posts where I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's right. And I can share Mm -hmm. them and then start incorporating that person into my own village. Absolutely. And that's such a good method too, because I find myself doing that on Two Feet Apart's Instagram page. I often find people that I'm like, I love the stories that you're sharing. Half the time, I don't even know you, but again, you're someone that I'm learning something from. So I'll follow you and I'll share your stuff. And then half the time that ends up in being a connection, even like this, um, where, you know, there's the occasional DM like, oh, I really agree with that post or what's your thoughts on this or whatever. And then you build that connection and you start to build that circle. Um, Sometimes it's, yeah, just those little steps that people don't always think of. And it's so interesting. So um, I'm a advocate for sex workers and uh, there's definitely a mixture of followers on my, on my Instagram that are um, also advocates for sex workers, sex workers themselves. And then there's the other side of the coin where, um, sex work isn't something that is in their wheelhouse to acknowledge at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I get those messages too. And, and some people re- will reach out to me and they'll say things like, you know, I really love most of your content, but I'm really, um, disappointed in your advocacy for sex workers. And that is, that's not, again, that's not about me. That's about mm-hmm. them, right? I can't take that personally. Um, that's, that their problem with that is their problem with that. It's not my problem with that. Um, so even this idea of, especially during COVID, uh, we saw this increase in sex workers to the sex work community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like, how does one go about finding other sex workers? What are the hashtags that sex workers use to find each other? Because this is a very underground um, underground career and profession. So how, how do they find each other? What do they do? How do they, is there like signals that they have? Like what, what, what's (laughs) happening here? Yeah. (laughs) So I think it's really, it's really useful to be online and just learn about the community that you want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good. That self-awareness and that's that drive to learn. 
And just, I find that people are often quick to be like, oh, I'm done school. I'm done learning. But it's one of those things that you need to do for the rest of your life. Um, which kind of brings me to my next question. When you learn all these things and like for me, if I learn something, say I'm reading something from John Gottman and I go through and I read all his research and I read kind of what he has to say about it, I'm automatically just implementing that into my life because that's just how it is. How do you find that as a therapist? Uh, Yeah, it's, so I get a lot when I have new clients that are emailing me um, to set up consults, a question that I get asked a lot is what's your approach? Mm -hmm. And when you're, when you're um, devoted to being a student, which also I am as well, this idea Mm -hmm. that there's never an end to learning, you're constantly learning. For me, it's never going to be like, I am a CBT therapist and that's who I am. And that's my label. Like for me, that feels, that's not in alignment to how I work. And I get excited when I learn new things and I'm like you, where I just want to, that's the framework that I see things through until the next thing that I learn. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I learn, I'll be able to, to bring in all of my other tools from the past in the toolbox, but then also be super excited about this new thing that I'm learning. Mm-hmm. So I, I always answer that question with, you know, here are some interventions that I pull from here are some interventions uh, that I'm learning about and that I'm really excited to be using with clients Um, but in general overall I am always client-centered which means that if you're looking for a CBT therapist that's not me do I use components of CBT only when I feel like it's appropriate and when the clients need it Um, but I, I am not, I just have a hard time as a human being with, I love structure, but I hate, I hate being told what to do and how to do things. Absolutely. So if being a therapist means I have to commit to a theory that if I go outside, if I color outside of the lines, it's considered not doing that form of intervention or theory, mm-hmm. then that's then I can't be a therapist if that doesn't qualify me as a therapist. So for me, it's just eclectic and eclectic approach. And as an eclectic therapist, which even in the therapy world, there's a lot of taboo around calling yourself an eclectic therapist. Um, you, you will always be picking up new skills and new tools. So it's mm-hmm. really always about the next cool thing. And even on my Instagram, like you can, it's funny to scroll back and see because you can see the themes and you can see what I was into at the time. And, and sometimes I will scroll back for inspiration and be like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. like where was that book? That book, I didn't finish it. I need to finish it because I really love that book. Yeah. That's so good. And that's kind of almost going back to your comment about how you have to wear all these hats. Um, but just with all the different things that you learn in them and just kind of cycling through them when applicable and using them so that you can properly 
guide your clients through that. And I think that's so important. Um, And I know that there's a lot of myths around therapists that, like you said, people expect them to be perfect and people expect them to whatever. And I remember in high school, I had this one therapist and I was like, she'd be such a good mom. Like she must have great relationships with her kids, whatever. And then I've stayed in touch with her and every so often we'll tell and she's like, oh my gosh, this kid is driving me crazy, whatever. And I was like, are you really? Um, And so it's one of those things like, there's that quote and it's like, your therapist probably has a therapist kind of thing. And just like your doctor probably has a doctor and all of these things, like you can't just help yourself. And sometimes it takes that other person. What are some myths about therapy that you wish were just not there? Oh, there's so many myths. And sometimes like you can't see the forest through the trees when you become a therapist, but, um, some people come to therapy with this assumption that, uh, it's the therapist's job to talk the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, if the session doesn't go well, it's because you're, you don't have a good therapist. Um, that <sighs> there's so many, um, there, there is so many. And oh, sometimes I, I there's sometimes I get like, um, the expectation that if, if somebody's not quote unquote fixed after X amount of sessions that the therapist is a bad therapist. Mm. Um, and alternatively, there are a lot of, um, myths around, uh, what's expected of the client. So, um, like clients should always be in a position where they feel safe. And so there's a myth that because a therapist is a therapist, they're always a safe person or because a therapist is a therapist and has had their training that they're not, um, they're not, um, discriminatory in any sense. And that is completely untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a myth that just because you're a couples therapist means that you can handle topics around sex, which I've learned very quickly. There are way too many couples therapists that can't handle any conversations around sex. Interesting. Yes. So interesting. They're like two silos. There are the silo that is sex therapists and the silo that is couples therapists. And we're only now trying to kind of create this communal barn for both of them. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, um, a myth that therapists, all therapists can diagnose, um, social workers, cannot formally diagnose psychotherapists cannot formally diagnose um psychologists and psychiatrists can Mm -hmm. um that were covered by ohip (laughs) (laughs) learned that the hard way (laughs) yeah i wish that would be nice Mm -hmm. um but no we're not we're just covered by some health benefit plans if you're in private practice Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Do you have any off the top of your head? Do you have any myths that you feel like come to your head for therapists? 
Um, mine's more like in the form of like tips for finding a therapist. Like it's like some people think they go to one therapist, it doesn't work out. That's it. No, sometimes you need to go to different people because not everyone can speak your language. Not everyone can understand what works for you. I've had to try several different therapists. I had one that anytime I said something sad or upsetting, she would have like a very dramatic facial reaction showing that she was also sad and upset. And I was like, well, now I want to cry because you also look upset and this isn't helpful. Um, (laughs) So sometimes you just need to go to different ones. And like I said, the other one, just that, you know, oh, you're a therapist for teenagers. You must be a great mom because you understand them. That's not always the case. And I think those are kind of the two biggest ones that I've learned because they were myths that I kind of believed. Because at first I went to that therapist that made the sad faces and I would come home and I'd be like, I don't know how I feel, not because of the session, just because of the way that she made me feel. Um, and so it was just a matter of finding other people that worked. Uh, and so I'd say those are probably the two biggest ones that come to my mind. Uh, and yeah, you probably have a lot more knowledge in the myths section since that's something that you actively work in. Um, I think I should probably ask clients. Like that's something that I don't ask clients. Like I do ask them, what are your expectations? That's good. Um, what are your expectations for therapy? And, and sometimes I can honestly say like, I will not be able to meet those expectations. Like those expectations Mm -hmm. are out of my wheelhouse, but I have, I don't think I've asked them what, what assumptions do you have about therapy, which might kind of bring to light more myths maybe. Absolutely. And I think that's so important to ask and even just recognizing like, I can help you, but I can't help with that. Um, Because it's one of those things that like, if you can't, if you know that you're not suited for someone, just like in relationships, if you know you're not suited for someone and you can't provide what they're looking for, it's better to just let them find someone that can or let them work through how they want to proceed with that. So I think that's awesome. Um, what's your biggest tip for people that are actively in therapy or looking for a therapist, which I guess could be two very separate pieces of advice, but (laughs) you can combine it if you'd like. Yeah. Um, if you're looking for a therapist, I think it's important to take advantage of, um, free consults from therapists because they don't cost you anything. Um, and have a list of expectations going into um, your consults. What are your goals for therapy? It's important to um, ask specific questions. So um, some of my clients who are coming to me for um, challenges surrounding their relationship dynamics, if they're uh, consensually non-monogamous, for example, they're going to ask right away, what are what are your, what are your professional values and beliefs around, um, polyamory or consensual non-monogamy? And it's important that they ask that up front because they need to know if I'm a safe person to be able to talk to or, um, 
and I know that there's some hesitation because there's impression management and as much as the therapist wants you to feel safe and wants to manage the professionalism of your impression of them, clients also want to manage their impression that, um, that, that they're maybe not as vulnerable as they actually feel. Mm -hmm. So it's important to say things like, you know, have you, have you, do you have experience working with kink culture? Um, do you have experience, um, assisting parents who, you know, use cannabis, like all of these taboo topics? Um, and you'll be able to know by the way the therapist answers, if they're being honest or not. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If you're in therapy, I think it's important to understand that you might have a fantastic relationship with your therapist, but if you're not meeting your goals or reaching your goals, like that's a conversation to have with them. Like, don't be afraid Mm -hmm. to say, Hey, listen, you know, these talks are really great, but I don't really feel like we're still focused on the goal for therapy. Yeah. I think it's important to have those check-in moments um, and to be able to be transparent about it because then that's even a tool that you can apply to other parts of your life as well. Totally. So yeah. And, and be able to and have those hard conversations with your therapist because if your therapist says something that offends you, that bothers you, that you don't agree with, out of all the people in your life, you should be able to say to them, hey, listen, this really bugged me during our last session and I was sitting with it and I was trying to process it and I just want to work through this with you Mm -hmm. because now I can learn how to work through this with you and take that information and apply it to my relationships. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Such good information. I'm so glad that I could have you on. Um, What about your story do you think is important for other people to hear? What about my story? Um, I know we didn't get too personal, but... No, that's okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not perfect. Um, I think a lot of people again, have that misconception that if you work with couples that you have a perfect relationship and I wouldn't want a perfect relationship. I, I am not perfect. My partner's not perfect. Um, a lot of my relationship experiences, um, help me guide clients to validating and normalizing situations that they come to therapy for. Mm -hmm. Um, the things that I am passionate about within my practice are all areas that I've experienced personally. Mm. And I think that's important too. That's like so good. My personal experiences helped me to become an advocate professionally because I have a voice um, and I'm going to use it. And if that makes people uncomfortable, then that's okay. I love it. I love even just having the confidence to be okay with something like that. Awesome. Um, So where could listeners find and support you? Oh my goodness. I would love (laughs) to support them as well. Um, 
So probably um, my Instagram is unfortunately uh, on my hand that's glued in my, in my phone that's glued to my hand, um, which is uh, mind online therapy, all one word, M-I-N-D, online therapy. Mm-hmm. And my website is mindonline.ca. Perfect. Well, I will also tag those in the show notes below so that people can find you and be able to access the information that you share, access your services if they'd like, all the things. You are one of my most favorite podcast hosts that I've had the opportunity to talk with because this was such an amazing and easy conversation and I totally appreciate it. Thank you so much. That is such a big compliment. (laughs) You're welcome.